This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. So hi, I'm Claire. For those of you who haven't already met um, or if you've joined me online this morning since we started. Um, Great. So how do you feel when someone tells you what to do? When someone else tells you what to do. And I don't mean when they say, oh, go and put your feet up, I'll clear up here, or go on, have another chocolate. I mean, when they tell you to do something that you don't want to do, or tell you that you can't do something that you do want to do. Earlier this year, it was Owen's birthday in March, um, just before the release of the new Batman movie. Um, So as a family, we decided we were going to go and watch that to celebrate. Uh, We also invited our goddaughter along because we had uh, a spare ticket. So we head off to B&M and buy all our snacks like we normally do before going to the cinema. We drive a good half an hour to get there, get there just in the nick of time, find probably the last space in the car park. We have our tickets ready. We're really excited. We arrive at the cinema and they tell us that we can't go in. It turns out that that night we have the most diligent and conscientious member of staff at the gates who brings to our attention that it's a 15 rating. Now, apart from the fact that we were trying to sneak in our 14 and a half year old, we didn't even get to that conversation because they point blank refused to let us in because we didn't have ID for the 16 year old that we did have with us. And it was so frustrating. We tried to reason, we tried to coerce, we tried the gentle approach and then we tried the not so gentle approach witnessed by our goddaughter and not our proudest moment. But we tried any which way we could to turn this situation around and get our own way. And despite the fact that they were only just doing their job, I can't tell you how frustrating it was to be, as grown adults, to be told by someone else what we could and couldn't do when we had chosen and decided to do it. It was so frustrating. Have you ever had your good plans thwarted by someone else telling you what you can or can't do? It's so annoying, isn't it? We hate being told what to do. I see it in my kids all the time. You don't need to tell me. It's a common phrase I hear from them. Of course I'm going to do my homework. Or of course I'm going to say um, say thank you. You don't need to tell me. It's annoying to be told, especially if it's something that we do anyway. Taking the choice out of a decision takes the joy out of it. And having choice paves the way for relationship. When Owen says to our middle son, Dan, oh, go and give your mum a hug. Even though it's said with the best intentions, it doesn't mean quite so much to him or me than when Dan spontaneously chooses to come and give me a hug. This desire to choose, to make our own decisions, is something that is innate in all of us. We see it right from the first few days of a newborn's baby's life, when they choose when they will sleep and when they won't, whether they'll take bottle milk or press milk, whether they will even have a dummy. It's their choice. It becomes a battle of wills right from the start. So even as babies, we have a will. It's how we're made. And we see this illustrated in the Genesis creation story. Have you ever wondered why God allowed Adam and Eve to do wrong in the Garden of Eden? 
why he didn't leave out the potential to make the wrong decision genes from our DNA. It's because he made us with free will and gave us the dignity of choice. God wants us to want to love him by choice, not because we have no alternative. We can freely accept or reject his invitation. He doesn't force anyone to love him and enter into a relationship with, with him because that wouldn't be love, right? Or does he? What if we decline? Haven't we heard the gospel message sometimes described as God's forgiveness is free for everyone, but if you don't accept it before you die, you'll be punished in eternity for hell. Sometimes we hear these things, even repeat them, but don't stop to really think about or question them. But is that really the God we follow? Is he really like that? Does that sound like free will? A choice with an ultimatum is not really a choice at all. Maybe we're missing something here. The idea that a loving God gives us free will, but punishes us when we don't choose his way, just doesn't make sense to me. So is God a God of free will, or does he ultimately manipulate and force our hand? Each of us would probably agree that God gives us choice, but sometimes I don't think that we actually truly believe that is the case by the way we act. We worry that, you know, if I make a wrong choice, maybe God won't protect me. If I disobey him, maybe he won't help me. If I don't live up to his standards, maybe he'll keep his distance. Now, I'm not suggesting there are not consequences for the life choices we make, but let's not confuse consequence with God punishing us. Sometimes I think I'm more motivated by that feeling of should or guilt or fear of what happens if I don't rather than pure choice. Is that really what God wants for us? Which is it? What is God like? A God of free will or a God who forces our hand? We often refer to God as king, as the one who rules, who's ultimately in control. So if God is king, what kind of king is he? What does it look like for him to reign? And what does that mean for us? And that's what I want to explore today. So when we think of kings and kingdoms, we think of glory and might and authority and power and reigning. And so when we imagine God as king, we might imagine God is king like our kings, except more. They are powerful. He is all powerful. They rule nations. He rules the universe. In fact, since he is the king of kings, that makes him emperor, emperor of the universe. To attempt to grasp what God is like, we take our greatest ideas of what a king or ruler might be and amplify it as far as our imagination can take us, and we project that onto God. 
Constantine, the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity, through whom Christianity spread rapidly across the whole of the Roman Empire, was considered by many to be the image and agent of the heavenly king. During the fourth century, there was a guy called Eusebius, who was the bishop of Caesarea, and he believed that God's kingdom had come on earth through the life work of Constantine. He believed that through the power of the cross, every hindrance to the global reign of God had been removed. And therefore, God's kingdom would now advance unchecked until it covered the earth. But as you may know, it was through domination that Christianity spread, through battle after battle as Constantine and his armies subjugated all foreign enemies in the name of Christianity. They were ruthless without restraint. And so for Eusebius, his image of God as king related to victory through violence and peace via conquest, ruling through force and coercive power and reigning through subjugation. Now, that is one extreme image of God as king. But what comes to mind for you when you consider the king of kings, the emperor of the universe, the unmatched, undefeated God and ruler of this world who will one day put things straight? How do you picture the king of kings? And what do you hope he is like? In the previous talk in this series, What is God Like? I propose that Jesus is the most accurate lens through which to view God. That Jesus acts exactly like God would, because Jesus is God in flesh. So what kind of king was Jesus? Well, when Jesus was born, angelic messengers were dispatched from the throne of God to announce the arrival of a king, the king. Angels appeared to Mary and Zechariah and a whole host of the shepherds. A star appeared in the sky that would lead three magi hundreds of miles to come and worship Jesus. But that was where all the pomp and grandeur abruptly ends. Remember the trudging journey to Bethlehem. Mary, nine months pregnant, riding on a smelly donkey. Remember the tiny village. No vacancy sign on the inn and a crowded, crowded manger full of animal poo. God, a helpless newborn, wailing for his mother's milk and then being whisked away at night to escape being murdered. His family, refugees. God came to earth this way for a purpose. And how God came is in itself an essential revelation of who he is, his character and nature. Recall how Jesus lived on earth, a carpenter, an itinerant preacher without a home, a servant washing his own disciples' feet a crucified king of the Jews and eventually a resurrected Christ. If God sent his son Jesus to reveal himself, to show us how true sovereignty works, what real power and victory looks like, 
then let me suggest that the king of heaven rules and reigns, not like Constantine, but like Jesus of Nazareth. If Jesus is king, he is not like any king we would conceive. Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom, and he said so himself. In Matthew chapter 20, he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is a strange kind of king. Jesus redefines our vision of God as king. The apostle Paul describes Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, and he says, Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of mankind. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now the key term in this passage is emptied, which in Greek is the word kenosis, And Paul uses this to describe the self-emptying of Jesus when he chose to come to earth. Jesus laid aside all the privileges that were his in heaven and chose to occupy the position of a servant. God literally poured himself out for us and demonstrated self-giving love and radical servanthood. Now, the early church was clear that Jesus never stopped being fully God when he became fully man. Colossians 2 verse 9 says that all the fullness of the Godhead dwelled in Jesus's human body. So, in fact, he must be fully human in order to experience our death and fully divine in order to overcome death. But he set aside all of the glory and all of the divine privileges that were his and that were incompatible with being 100% human. In the ultimate act of humility, the emperor of the universe became a human being and died for his creation. Kenosis can be understood in the same way we might understand the first line of the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount, which says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit, in other words, not full of ourselves. Emptied of egotism, bankrupt of selfishness, humble, generous, effusive in love. That's kenosis. 
That's King Jesus. Now, don't for one minute think that therefore God is in any way weak. Remember, Jesus chose to die. He wasn't forced. In Matthew chapter 10, when speaking about his life, Jesus says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And Jesus is the only person I know of that has ever brought himself back from the dead. So weak is not a description that I would use for him. So rather than Jesus's humility and servanthood being a departure from his glory and power, hindering or hiding it, I suggest it actually demonstrates and defines it. That kenosis, self-emptying, self-giving love and radical servanthood expresses God's character and nature. And therefore, this is how he rules as king. That God rules and reigns not through power and force, but through kenotic love. Kenosis, which is to say love, is the heart of who God is. Not lording over, but coming under. Not triumphing through conquest, but through his death on the cross. God's being and power are his canotic love. Love is by nature willing, consensual, self-giving and sacrificial. The Apostle John clarifies this in one of his letters when he says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So with that in mind, let's revisit the Genesis creation story in the Garden of Eden. And I want to share a perspective I've gained from a book called A More Christ-Like God by Brad Jerzak, and from which I've taken a lot of inspiration for this series. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with the creation narrative. When God had made Adam and Eve, he blesses them and gives them the land and the animals and the plants and the trees to rule over and take care of. He placed them in the Garden of Eden and tells them that they can eat from any tree in the garden, but they must not eat from just the one tree of knowledge of good and evil. To place creation into the hands of humanity is an expression of a yielding and canotic God. So what about the tree then? Was the tree a demonstration of God's power to reign? His will to establish and enforce his law? To demand obedience and punish obedience with a curse? Was the tree set there as a trap waiting to be sprung? Doesn't seem fair. But what if the tree had a different purpose? What if it provided a way to enable relationship between God and humanity? What if it, it, it was a demonstration of God's kenosis, his divine yielding, and a means by which we could legitimately become like God? Genesis Chapter 126 says that humanity was made in God's image and likeness. 
What if the image we carry is kenosis, of yielding, of power laid down? What if we are all intrinsically powerful, but we don't actually become godlike until and unless, like God, we lay it down? The tree and the command not to touch it gives humanity genuine choice and therefore genuine potential expression of control and power. God could not have set the bar of obedient yielding much lower. Adam and Eve are not even called to do anything. They are simply asked to refrain from something while being filled with innumerable delights. They can eat from any other tree in the garden. What if God's command was not about putting humanity in its place, but rather lifting us to the image of the divine? That he yields power to us by giving us dignity of choice, then consenting to lay down power, we become like him. Sadly, Adam and Eve blew it. We all have. Rather than yielding, we grasp for power. We assert our freedom and exert our will. But thanks be to God, there is another garden and another man. The Bible calls him the second Adam. Jesus, who the night before he was crucified, knelt in surrender in the garden of Gethsemane and yields his will completely to God the Father. He too was tempted to do do it his own way like Adam and Eve and like we are, but he resisted. He passed the test and truly fulfilled what humanity was destined for, the perfection of of the divine image. Jesus lays down his power and invites us to lay down ours. When we risk emptying ourselves of self-will and self-rule to make space for the other, that is where the kingdom love of God rules and reigns. God's kingdom reign and very nature is chaotic love. And he rules and reigns in this world through our consent, our yieldedness, our surrender, through our willingness to be a conduit of his self-giving love for the world. That's a different kind of kingdom and a strange kind of king. We're going to take the rest of this time now, for the next five or ten minutes before we close, just to do a little bit of contemplation on this. We're going to take a Lectio Divina um, and just make a bit of space. When we come here on a Sunday, it's not just about hearing about God, but about encountering him. So we're just going to give a little bit of space for God to continue to speak to us and just imprint on us whatever he wants to today. So we're going to take the passage from Philippians 2. There's some sheets being passed around. It's also going to appear on the screen. 
I'm going to read it once first to all of us. And as I read it, I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit to highlight one verse, phrase or word to highlight one of those to you, that he might want to make especially real for you this morning. And then I'll guide us through um, a reflection on that and then we'll read it all again together at the end to finish. We're not going to put any music on today, we're just going to have silence. If you're at home, the words will appear on the screen, they will appear as well, but you might want to use the words that I give you so you can just look down. You might want to close your eyes and just try and cut out any other distractions. This is time for you and for God. And we pray, God, that you will make this real to us. Your canotic love, your self-emptying, help us to grasp that and who you are. Okay, so as I read this, just ask the Holy Spirit to highlight one word or phrase to you, and then we'll take it from there. Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being born in the likeness of mankind. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now having chosen a word or phrase just take a few minutes to soak in that. If you're not sure, you can't decide between two, just pick one. And then as you soak in that, just allow your imagination and thoughts and emotions to flow. It might bring up memories and thoughts that send you off into a whole scene in your imagination. And if so, just go with that. Or it might bring up emotions. It might make you feel peaceful or joyful or it might make you feel agitated or angry or confused. And if so, whatever it is, don't try and control that. Just think about why that might be the case and let God speak into that. So I'm going to give you a few, men, few moments just to soak on that.
And when you feel ready, just ask God to show you his perspective on what you're thinking about. You might want to ask him, God, what do you want me to know right now? What do you want me to know? And then just begin to chat with him about that, sharing your heart and hearing his words to you. Hey, we're just going to read through that passage together now and then we'll take one minute afterwards just to rest and thank God for what he's shown to us. So let's read it together. Christ Jesus, who, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of mankind. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. For this reason, also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's going to take one minute just to thank God and rest in that place with him.